See that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. This is God's word. Well, if you've been with, been with us through this series, you'll, you may have noticed that when I read the scripture, we always have a scripture on which the teaching is based, uh, I'm, I'm cutting and pasting, so I'm just choosing little parts of it. But today I just decided to read a full chunk of it, and I did that for a very selfish reason. It's because I want you to have a little bit of empathy for me as you try to preach through this. Um, the Gospel of John has always been one of my favorite uh, books. Probably, I was just thinking about why, and then I was like, oh, because my name is John. And so I was, probably sub- I was probably subliminally like, yeah, this is probably a good guy. Um, but it is notoriously difficult to preach through. Um, because of what we just read, that oftentimes it doesn't proceed for us who are trained in Western-style thinking, and for me who is trained in Western-style preaching, it's actually very hard to preach through. Because it doesn't proceed, uh, what I'm trained for basically is to preach through a narrative, that I think I can do okay, or to understand a passage that's like a linear reasoning progression. So oftentimes Paul's letters will be like that. The first half is theology, and it's kind of like premise A, and then he details premise B, therefore C, and then at the end of the book he gives us a bunch of things to do. He says, based on this, do this. Uh, but John, the Gospel of John is not like that at all. Um, instead, what I, how I would characterize the Gospel of John is like this. It's like Jesus has these really confusing conversations with people who have no clue what's going on, and then Jesus responds to them with something like divine ADD. Like, that's what this passage is basically, like, it's, it's in a good example where Jesus is like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? He's in me and I'm in him. And if you keep my commands, then you will experience our love. And if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Also, the Spirit will come to be with you, because I'm going away because I'm with the Father, right, in case you didn't remember that. But don't worry, his words are my words. <laughs> But don't worry about it, because we're, t- we're one, we're together. But you, if you obey those words, you'll be in me. Also the Spirit. The Spirit is a counselor who will be coming, and then you can obey him, but those are my words. They're actually, actually, they're not mine, they're from the Father. Don't worry, the Spirit will remind you. And it's just like, you're like, I don't know what you said, but you're special. And uh, <laughs> thank you for that. And it, it, it reads to me, at least, like a big plate of spaghetti. 
where just like you, you, you see one noodle and then another noodle and it's just like all these different trains of thought kind of going on and on and you hope that at some point you get to some meatballs. But the point is to say, I want to remind us, take the opportunity to read it, is to remind us that what we're reading here is an ancient document, a 2,000-year-old document. And so it, it, it's normal, actually, that it will run against our cultural assumptions of what we should expect when we come to it. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that we always need to check our assumptions. Coming to the Gospel of John or any book in the Bible and just thinking that we'd be able to understand it on first blush would be like going to a rural town in Pakistan and getting out of the cab and saying in English, hey, where's the white spot? Like, I'm, I'm hungry for a pirate pack. Where's the white spot around here? And that's often what we do. And it's really important. I want to take the opportunity for us to remind ourselves the Bible is written for us, but it is not written to us. It's written for us. There is so much that is important for us to understand. The whole story is for us. But as, as modern Western readers, we really need to remember, we need to check our assumptions when we come to the story. Sometimes it's, it's not understandable just because we're coming with our questions. And so this is where we also need people from other cultures to come and help us. Specifically, if you come from like a storytelling culture or a circular reasoning culture, which doesn't mean there's not reasoning, it just happens more like what Jesus is doing here. So for those of us who are from Persian cultures, from indigenous culture, from Asian cultures, we're much more comfortable probably with Jesus' words. And so we need you to help us as, as more Western-style people uh, because I want to just remind us of what we're trying to get across in this series graphic, but also I think what Jesus, one of the things he's trying to say here is that we need each other around the table. If we want to be centered on Jesus and not center our own cultural moment and our own ideas, we need to listen to each other. We need to be sometimes put in uncomfortable places of what Jesus is, is saying. So that's a tip for reading along, which I invite you to do as we continue to pro- process through this story and make progress through the Last Supper uh, with Jesus. So this morning, I want to just try to pull on one of those, one of those noodles, one of those noodles in the spaghetti bowl here. And after Jesus makes his iconic statement about being the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas says this to him. If you want to go to the next slide, Caleb. He says, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So Thomas is asking here for what's called a theophany. That's what theologians call it, which is he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see or see and experience God which is something that happens from time to time in in the story of the Bible. He wants to see and interact with the God of the universe. And the Bible actually says that no matter who we are, this is actually the deepest longing of our hearts. It's the deepest desire for us as humans, is to see and to know this Yahweh Elohim, to be in his presence. We saw this when we looked at Genesis 2 and 3, that God longs to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us, to walk with us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's sitting at the table. He wants to sit at the table with us. And so Jesus has already said to Thomas, as we looked at last week, that he is God. He says, I am way, I am truth, I am life. I am God. But Thomas's question, or his request to show, to show God, shows that Thomas has not understood Jesus' answer. So Jesus goes at it again in our passage today, but he's going to do it once again in a way that will break Thomas's and our brains. So he says this, Jesus responds to Thomas's question, I want to see God, and Jesus says this, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father lives in me. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you love me, you are loved by my Father. And just as many ways as he can, he's trying to describe this super tight relationship between the Father and Jesus, that they are one. And then he follows up by saying, look, Thomas, I know that you didn't ask, but actually there's just another character I'd like to introduce you to as well. The Spirit. 
This, if you remember the Father, last week we looked at this, the Father is, or God is truth, Elohim Amet, the God of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And then later he calls the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Or he says, you could just call him my Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, or another counselor. And sometimes in the scriptures, it's he. Sometimes in the scriptures, it's she. Has a lot of different names, the Spirit. But Jesus says, oh, yeah, but anyways, the Father will send the Spirit. And, and the Spirit will come and remind you of everything that I said when I go to the Father. And it's like this whole narrative, like I said, is a, is a plate of spaghetti. But then he introduces a plate of spaghetti within the spaghetti. It's like spaghetti inception, which I know you thought you were going to hear this morning. But it's like this, this, this being at the center of the story is also like a bit of spaghetti. Father, Jesus, and Spirit. Jesus is speaking of this mysterious relationship where they're spoken of somewhat as separate entities, but at the same time, they're one. And the church has expressed this idea with the word Trinity. Now, here's my dilemma this morning. You see how good Jesus is at describing this group of people. You see how the gospel writer John is at describing them, which it's not very clear. In my hometown, we would say it's clear as mud. Um, I don't know that I can do any better. So, Thankfully, there are some people who can and really help us to understand, I think, what's going on here, or at least let us understand what's hard to understand. Um, So I want to show us a video from the Bible Project who do a great job of taking these big concepts and and, uh, putting them into language and visuals that I think we can grasp a little bit more to help us understand who the triune God is. So this is about seven minutes long. I invite you to watch and listen along to how they describe the Trinity. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then, here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D object's above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great. Let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. 
But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the Spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's Spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God, and also God. It's God's Spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's Spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew Scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes. And then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human, distinct from God, and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew Scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God. Or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God. Or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. 
Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible. Ruler, creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the father as an eternally others-centered life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the father says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. And then keep reading in that story, the person who brings that message of love from the father to the son is the spirit of God. So we've talked about God's spirit. Here within creation, it's through the spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the spirit, he experienced the father's love. But it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the spirit would go out and share the father's love with all humanity and with all creation. So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. All right. I hope that's uh, helpful to you. And regardless of if it is or not, it is much better than what I could do in seven minutes. Trust me. Um, I would be doing like an egg analogy or something like that. So uh, there's so much in there that, that, that's worth exploring. Uh, this morning, the rest of the time we have, I just wanted to pick out kind of three different things that come from this passage and that are talked about even in the video. One of the most helpful pictures for me in the video was this understanding that we live on this 2D plane. And God is 3D, that that's a visual analogy for understanding God. And, and here's how I tried to, to picture it last week, something like this, using these circles. See, I'm telling you, my, my stuff is way worse. You'd be, be happy with the video. So the Bible says that Yahweh Elohim is always slightly beyond us. He's beyond our, our mental abilities to wrap, like to categorize him and to wrap around language around him. And at the same time, this Yahweh wants to be known by us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. So he invites us to know him through story, through language, and through our mental faculties, which is an amazing offer, but it can also become a deep challenge to us because we are sometimes more committed to our systems of thought, to our cultural paradigms, than we are committed to the Yahweh, the 3D Yahweh. So for example, last week I introduced us to cultural paradigms that we live in, two of them, modernity and post-modernity. And I want to revisit those uh, to help us understand how we might understand better the Trinity in this language that Jesus is using. So modernity is this time, uh, this period of time where we relied and used the tools of reason and science to get to facts, to objective knowledge towards truth. And that's, that's great. That's netted out in loads of wonderful things. For example, if we get sick, we can go to the doctor and the chances of them being able to help us is really, really high. Um, but our tendency can be this, that we do the same thing to God. We apply those same tools, that we try to capture him with our reason and with our words. And we can start to believe that we are able, as 2D people, 
to actually get our arms around the 3D God, that we figured God out. And so this is a direct application of the, of the passage today, that what we often do, if you can go back one, that we are tempted to take what John says here and Jesus says about the Trinity, about the triune God, and we put it into this little box here, that God is three in one. And it's part of this truth box that we have to believe if we're going to be Orthodox Christians, or it's called doctrine. Now, I think Jesus is describing the Trinity, and I, and I would call myself an Orthodox Christian, which you're like, that's already a bit of a red flag. If you have to say it, then maybe it's not. Like, I'm a nice guy, honestly, if you're like, well, it's like that. But here, here's what I, I understand. I actually just don't think that idea belongs there. That is the wrong place for it. Where it belongs is, is over here in the green circle. If we try to put it inside of this truth box here, what it does is it becomes a doctrine, something we, we feel that we can put our hearts and our minds, we can wrap ourselves around God. And I just don't think that that's what Jesus is trying to do in this passage. He, it, it's, it's not something that we agree to, but something that's supposed to help teleport us from our 2D world into God's 3D world. That's what the language of the Trinity is supposed to do. Open us up to the God who is God. Yahweh Elohim. The God who is three and one, and the God who would come and invite us into relationship. It's actually inviting us to see. That's what this is is doing. To see a world that is different. The goal of the Trinity and the goal of doctrine is never intellectual mastery. The goal is that the mind-breaking reality of the Trinity brings us to worship. That's the, always the invitation. That is what a theophany is for. That's what Thomas is asking. He's asking to come face-to-face with the God of the universe, and that is not supposed to be so we can wrap our arms around him and, and understand who he is necessarily, but that we come as people who worship. We stand in front of this God and we realize, oh, I'm so much smaller, but I'm somehow invited into relationship. So that's the challenge for those of us who are more modern people. Again, the goal isn't to make you postmodern or anything else, but to understand that this is a challenge for those of us who are more modern. And there's a challenge for those of us who are more postmodern too. Again, postmodern people might be very drawn to this idea that the Trinity is, is kind of unknowable. That's cool. That's, that's fine. That means nobody can have the, the corner on truth. If God is bigger and beyond any language that I can bring to table, the table, then that means that any language that I use is going to be equally wrong. So I can... Be open to, God can be open to the definition of, of whatever I want to make him. I can kind of call God whatever I want. This is uh, very famously uh, made obvious in the, in the wonderful, should have been award-winning movie, Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, if you've ever seen that. <laughs> Top of the Rick Will Ferrell catalog for me. But there's this famous scene in the movie where they're sitting around the table and they're praying. And one of the characters prays to baby Jesus, and he's like, I just want to pray to six-pound Nine-ounce Jesus, baby Jesus, doesn't even know how to speak yet. And then they go around the table, and they all start just saying who Jesus is like. And one of them is like, I just like to think of Jesus as the lead singer of Leonard Skinner, and I'm in the front row, hammer drunk. And they all just kind of go around, and they start saying who Jesus is. This is, a, this is post-modernity, that we create Jesus into whoever we want him to be. But that is not the invitation of Jesus. This passage invites us to something much bigger <clears throat> excuse me, something much bigger than that. If we want that, that, that God is always beyond our language and beyond our ability to know, but he is a God who comes. That in the person of Jesus, God has come to us. And he's entered into our world. We're to look to Jesus if we want to know what God is like. And so that is the invitation that we have as postmodern people. If you want to go to the next slide. 
that God, Yahweh, still stands beyond us. And Jesus comes in the person of God. It's a personal truth. It is not a rational truth or words that we can wrap our mind around. But this Jesus also speaks to us, tells us about who this God is. If you want to go to the next slide again there, Caleb. That, that Jesus is, is calling us out of our own little truth bubbles into something much bigger. God is not whatever we want to think about him. He is like this. So the Trinity then becomes this language that sits in the middle for us. It's not a claim to ultimate truth that we know everything about God. It is not inviting you to become a modern person and just believe in propositional truth. But it's not also an invitation to make God into whoever you want to be or say that truth is unknowable. Jesus says the truth isn't something, it is someone. It is someone who has come, it is someone who has spoken, and it is someone who invites us into this relationship with the triune God of the universe. And so a discipline for us as postmodern people is not to pretend that this is rational or obvious, but to learn to confess. Confess to this truth. If you want to go to the next slide. That I may not have the corner on all truth, but there is a truth, and that truth is the God-man Jesus who has come. And this triune God that I'm opening myself up to a much bigger way of seeing. And as a 2D person, that's always going to be limited. But I come around with all the rest of us as 2D people. And all the saints throughout history. And we confess to this God who stands beyond. Thomas, in his, in his request of Jesus, voices the deepest desires of our heart. Which is to have a theophany to see and to know God. And Jesus invites him and he invites us to this brain-breaking reality. Which is an invitation to worship. Don't shrink God. Don't make him to be the God that's the size of our culture or the God that's the size of our brains just because it makes us uncomfortable. The God of the universe will always make us uncomfortable in order to invite us into this 3D reality about who he is and what the universe looks like. So that's the first thing that's, that we learn is that God breaks our brain because he's beyond. That's the Trinity is designed to break our brains, not to wrap our minds around. He's bigger than we think. He's this three-in-one relational reality that's very ethereal and difficult to grasp. But the good news is that this passage also tells us that God has made himself very clearly known to us in the person of Jesus. So if we want to know what God looks like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. We're in each other. My words are his words. My love is his love. And this is so, so, so important for us. Whether you come from a church background or not, all of us carry ideas about who God is. Every single one of us. You know, one of my uh, like intellectual mentors, he says that to, to use the word God in our culture today without defining that word is one of the most irresponsible things we can do as Christians. To use the word of God without defining it is one of the most irresponsible things because everyone is carrying their own picture of who God is. And that picture will carry a wild amount of weight for you. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Regardless of if you're an atheist or you're a Christian, if you think that God doesn't exist, that will mobilize you into the world in some way, shape, or form. Um, I forgot to put this slide up here, but over Christmas I bought some books, and I was just perusing in the book warehouse, and I saw this Bible. It's a summary of a Bible, and it's called God is Disappointed in You. <laughs> and it just has this picture of this divine hand, this dude who's just sitting there kind of like this, and then there's this divine hand just waiting to like hit him. And it's very sacrilegious and very funny. If that's your picture of God, that mobilizes you into the world. The book was written for a reason. 
and has made it all the way over here into Vancouver for a reason. Many of us carry something like that, and it will mobilize us into the world. Maybe one way it mobilizes you into the world is to be here and to try to be as good as you can because you're just avoiding that divine flick. Some of you will just, and maybe many of my friends, maybe many of your friends have just said, if that's who God is, I'm out. It still mobilizes them into the world, though. That they're, they're out there trying to perform, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. All of us are mobilized by our picture of who God is. And Jesus is saying, if we want a palate cleanser on this word God, look at him. He is the image of God. He says, all the gospels say this, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so in our community here, we unapologetically read the Bible, not in a flat way, but in a way that is centered on Jesus. Every part of the Bible is beautiful. Every part is worth, worthy of study and is a story that becomes our story. We just spent 14 weeks looking at Genesis 2 and 3. We really do believe this is our story and we want to take it seriously. But we also don't read it as flat. We read it in a way that it leads to Jesus. That he is the center of the story. He is the word. He is the interpretive key for us to understand who God is. He is the one who shows us the Father. And that's why we spend time at this time of the year, every year, looking at a gospel. I think most of us have some sort of telephone version of who Jesus is. You know that game that you play as kids when you get in a row and you tell each other? And our view of Jesus is like we heard from a guy who heard from a girl who heard from a guy who heard from Fox News something about Jesus. And Jesus is coming. We come to this, this book to try to palate cleanse ourselves. We all bring distorted pictures, but we're all invited to the table. And so we want to take this picture seriously to understand who God is, that he is, looks like Jesus, who is simultaneously the picture of God and the true human for us. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit like? You know, I think this is a tough one. I, at least I know it is for me. I grew up in a, in a tradition, Christian tradition, that didn't talk about the Spirit at all. Some of you guys, that's not your story. But for me, I have a very hard time sometimes like, experiencing or understanding what the Spirit is doing in my life. I'm like, is that the Spirit? Or am I? I think I'm hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry. It's not the Spirit at work. So what does Jesus say? He actually clarifies this amazingly clearly for us. What does the Spirit do? The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. How will we know the voice of the Spirit? He will remind us of what Jesus has already said, of who he is. That means the Spirit will never lead us to places to become people of violence, but always to become people of peace because that's who Jesus is. He will never be inviting you into anxiety. No matter what you're facing, he'll be inviting you in those moments of difficulty in our lives, which will come, we'll we'll see that in a few weeks, into person who has patience and hope and endurance. The Spirit will never be inviting us to become self-serving people, but always people who learn how to serve, to learn how to die. That is the invitation of following Jesus. And I think, I, I know this is true for me, but I also know it's true from pastoring for a little while, that I think we miss out on, on what the Spirit is doing and what the Spirit is saying because we're often just focused in the wrong direction with our questions. I think the vast majority of questions that we ask God or ask, want to hear from God, they're something like decisional questions. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I, should I take this you know, master's degree or shouldn't? Should I stay? Should I move? Should I take this job or shouldn't I? Should I put my kids in public school, private school, Christian school, forest school, homeschool, free school? You know, there's about 50 other versions um, of that. And so these are all really important questions, okay? I don't want to say that they're not. 
And it's why we practice times of discernment here as a family of God, to try to learn how to discern these questions. I just want to point out what Jesus is saying in this passage, which is that the Spirit's primary job in this passage is not to tell us something we don't know. It's to tell us something we do know. It's to point to things Jesus has already said for 2,000 years. It's to point to the person who does exist. And I think we just miss out on that, and so therefore we sometimes feel like the Spirit isn't, we have no idea what the Spirit is doing, or if the Spirit is even, you know, real at work in our midst. But the Spirit is not expressing hidden truths to us, but inviting us always to become a person who looks like Jesus. Sometimes it's that still, quiet voice, which is not about the decision that you're making in a meeting, for example, but about the person that you are in that meeting. Are you a person filled with anxiety? Are you a person bent on vengeance? And the Spirit will always guide us and invite us to become people who look like Jesus. So the Spirit and Jesus are one. And the Spirit will remind us of of Jesus' words. So the triune God is mysterious, but praise God, we can know this God through Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians says. The word become flesh. And he's gifted us with his spirit to lead us into all truth. So the triune God breaks our brains, which is inviting us to worship. Not to to gather and and conquer him, but to actually come and worship him. And the triune God can be known through the person of Jesus. And finally, I want to close by saying the triune God is a crazy invitation. The triune God is a crazy invitation. As we said, and as we saw, this Jesus' depiction of this God pushes us to the edge of our brains. It pushes us to the edge of our language. And so the best tool, I think what, what's actually being invited here, anytime this happens, is it's not asking you maybe to involve your rational brain as much as it might be involved asking you to imagine. That's what, that's what Jesus might be doing. It's asking us to imagine that there could be a being like this. And so I invite you to imagine with me this morning what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, imagine the closest relationship that you have. He's using the example of a father and a son, or you might think of a a mother or a daughter, a best friend, and we all have different relationships. Sometimes we have really good relationships with our parents. Sometimes we have bad ones. But Jesus is saying, imagine the best one. That's the best language I have. And then he says, let's multiply that by a million. That's what my relationship is like. And then Jesus says, imagine, think of a time in your life where you've just been in sync with somebody. Right? Where you've just been so connected with them that you finish each other's sandwiches. That's right. <laughs> but you have that moment where you're like, wow, I, I didn't think there was someone else who thought like me. You know, I have a really a good friend. We went to university together. His name is Matt. I get to see him once or twice a year. He lives in Kelowna now. And every time I come away from hanging out with him, I, again, it's, it's one of these things where it pushes me to the edge of my language. How do I even describe? Uh, and especially as men... We're, it's hard for us to describe our male friendships without trying to be like, and, and we're very straight with each other. Um, but it's like, I, we're just in sync. I, I always come out of those times just feeling full, seen, and, and I'm like, maybe, maybe we're both crazy, but at least we're crazy together. And they're just full moments, and I don't get to see him very often anymore, but these are, are moments that I have. And Jesus says, whatever those moments are like for you, wherever those relationships exist, imagine that. That's what it's like with me and my Father and the Spirit all the time. Multiply it by a million. And then he says, imagine that these relationships weren't just a one-time thing. Imagine that it's not just like a mother and a daughter, that you, you knew each other growing up, you knew each other intimately, and then the daughter moved away, and you're kind of maybe out of touch. But he says, imagine a relationship like this that, that stretches out through all eternity. That this, this closeness of father and son 
this closeness of knowing and loving each other has been going on throughout all eternity, that these, these bonds of, of love are so thick because they have happened throughout all time. And, he, and Jesus, of course, knows we've now experienced those things. We've had glimmers of them. And they're the best moments of what it means to be alive and to be human. Is these moments where we feel seen, we feel known, where we feel life is rich and life is full. And Jesus says, that's what it's like in me, in this community, all the time, is this deep love for one another. And then he says these crazy words. Just like I'm in the Father, you're in me. And I'm in you. And if anyone loves me, if you, if you just keep my words, my Father will love you. And he'll come to you and make, we'll make our home with you. Jesus is saying that the, uh, the Trinity is a philosophical problem to be solved. He's saying it's the divine family that you're invited to join. That's the invitation. It's an eternal love that we were made for, that we long for, that we deeply yearn for, even if we don't know it. And then it's now become open to us. It's a table with a feast where a place has been set for me and for you and we can come and we can sit and we can be known and we can be loved and we can be fed and we can grow into this family. The the Trinity, as C.S. Lewis said, said it very famously, it's a dance. It's a dance that we're invited to join. If you're a Mennonite, maybe you can just forget that. Don't, don't worry about that one. But this is the invitation for us, that, that Jesus is breaking our brains with the 3D God, but he's also breaking the world open. He's breaking open this, this cosmic being of love that stands at the center, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he says, oh yeah, and you, doubting Thomas, and you, Peter, who will betray me. And he reaches across 2,000 years, and he says, oh, and you, John, and you, Mitch, and you, man, and whatever your name is, this is the invitation of God. It's the great invitation of Jesus to come to the table, to come and be part of his family, to eat, to sit with Father and Son and Spirit, and sit with his crazy family that makes up all different people from different nations and learn what it's like to be a community of love to take this cosmic love that we're invited into and to express it to our world. And I'll close with this. Jesus just then casually drops this note. You know, I'll say to you, if you actually believe in me, you'll do the works I'm doing and you'll do greater things than me because I'm going to the Father. And I think this does mean miraculous things and I don't want to limit that and I don't want to downplay that. I think it does mean miraculous stuff, which is why for the uh, new members lunch after I just got bread some small bread and fish, and we're just going to see if we can do some miraculous things afterwards. I don't want to limit that, but I do want to put this into context for us and remind us of the works that Jesus is talking about, the works that we've already seen him do. Because to start the meal, what he does is he sits down with his disciples and the God of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the one who all things are made from, strips down and takes the position of a slave and washes some feet. And in a few weeks, we'll see his greatest work ever. That the one who is the word, whom created the world, the one who holds life in his hand and has gifted that to us and our world, will be stripped down once again. And will take his place of scandal and of extreme shame on the cross in order to give us life. To die that we might live, the Bible says.
These are the works of Jesus. And so Jesus looks around the table and he invites each of us to come. And he says, come into this family of love and come to the table and do greater works than I did. Learn how to become a person who can serve. Learn how to become a person who can wash feet and die. Take on my story that even greater works will be done through you. Let's pray before I invite you to the table. Father, we thank you uh, for this picture in many ways. Um, I sometimes feel like I stand up here and and talk with words for 30 minutes, and um, this is just such an unfathomable thing uh, that even in 30 minutes it's it's hard to do justice to. Um, And uh, so my hope and my prayer is that it draws us to a place of wonder and worship, of imagination and of invitation, of, of the kind of God that you are and the kind of relationship that you invite us to. So just as you invited Thomas all those years ago around a table to um, wonder um, and to worship, we ask that we would uh, be drawn into that as well. As we sing together, would we worship you? Would we cry these words out, not as a way to um, perfect our doctrine, but as a way to cry out to the God who is beyond, to come to relationship with you, to confess to these things that are bigger than we can imagine with our, our finite brains. As we come to the table together, would you restory us around God's story, around your story, to come, to give, to bring all that we have, but to learn how to serve, to die and to rise and to enter your family, to sit at your table. So we give this time to you and we pray for your presence to minister to us as we respond. In Christ's name, amen. 